Desert Storm Ciara. I thought it was Kiara. Has it passed now? Is that is that done? I think it's moving over Europe. Oh. Welcome to another RCSLT podcast. We're in Henley and Arden, which is between Birmingham and Stratford-upon-Avon. And we're with Claire Ewan, who is finishing up a PhD in which she investigates the well-being of SLTs. Claire is presenting her findings to a local ASLTIP meeting. Uh, it's pretty inclement weather, but it seems like we'll manage to get where we need to be in one piece. Daycare was all full up. So. You are so London. I know, I'm so London. And then I couldn't get any, I couldn't get any other spots and other doggy daycare. So I was like, Okay. Uh, when we started a family, I stopped my NHS locum work, and um, when my children were still quite young, I decided I, I wanted to keep things going. So I, I started very small amounts of independent work just to keep my hand in, um, and then very, very gradually that grew. And doing the independent work, I realised it was the right path for me with the family, the flexibility, rather than going into a structured full-time job or part-time job. So I, um, I work. I am um, employed by well by parents basically, but I do go into schools. So. My practice is school-based, um, although only one of the schools commissions me to, to do work with children. They have the funding. Um, in the other schools I go in, I'm working with the staff, with the children, but also with parents sort of remotely, and um, parents are funding the work that I do in the schools. Right. I mean, we might not include this in the podcast. Before the presentation, I took the opportunity to chat to some of the SLTs about their practices. Um, I spoke to a number of them about their decision to go independent. It was uh, clearly something that everyone at the Asseltip meeting had, had wrestled with. I didn't speak to anyone who regretted going independent, and they had a variety of reasons for doing so. It's an interesting and, I suppose, uh, controversial subject. And it's something that Claire spoke about, which we'll get into in a bit, because it, it relates to this question of, of, of well-being. I really find it difficult um, because a lot of what I do I feel is something that the children I work with should be getting, that they shouldn't be in that situation of only being able to get it because they're in a financial situation or their parents are in a financial position to fund it. Uh, so it, I do struggle with that. Um, it, it, I struggle with that on a daily basis, really. But I'm also aware that there is, there is a need. Yeah, so I specialise in working with children with Down syndrome. So um, I cover a wide geographical area. Um, I support about 40 children, all with Down syndrome, from uh, about six months right up until about 18. Um, 
And again, that's that, you know, I cross four, so I work regularly in four different NHS areas. So I'm funded by two charities. So there's a charity for children with Down syndrome in Solihull, and there's another one with Warwickshire, and I work for both of them. Um, funded through some care plans, um, funded by some schools, and then funded by some parents. Um, yeah, so it's it's a mix, really. Um, yeah, yeah, it's good. Being our occupational health, trying to maximize that through job design. I'm going to talk a little bit about what I found for all SLTs, so those who are employed and self-employed, and then I'll focus on independent SLTs. Okay. So what my PhD looked like is I did a big survey of uh, 632 people. Um, who filled in online questionnaire, and then I followed, followed that up with a round of interviews. Of that 632, there were 58 self-employed people. And I then interviewed 15 people, five of whom were independent. So there was representation. So what Claire did was she first looked at what people's jobs actually looked like, how much control they had over their work as well as the strain they were under and then this produced different groups of people, for instance people with a high degree of control in their work but also high strain, people with a low degree of control and low strain and all the other combinations that you can imagine. And probably the people who are worst off in those combinations are the people that have a very low degree of control over their work. Um, but are also under high strain. And then Claire got all of the participants to complete something called the General Health Questionnaire, or the GHQ. This is a screening device for identifying minor psychiatric disorders. But basically, it indicates if there is something that might be of concern and needs further investigation. Look at the high strain, so that olive green color. We've got between 35 and 37 percent who are employed are in those high strain groups, 4 percent who are self-employed. Right? So what I'm saying is I'm not saying that it doesn't happen at all. There aren't I'm not saying that in the private sector, in the independent sector, we have no one who's working in a high strain job. But this is statistically significant. The first important finding to be aware of was that by far the largest number of people who identified as being under high strain were organizationally employed, and that would generally be the NHS. Now the research is still ongoing, so we must be very careful about jumping to conclusions, but it probably doesn't come as too much of a surprise. The NHS can be a stressful place to work, and it faces a number of significant funding challenges, which can have an impact on, on individual well-being. And next, Claire looked at the results of the general health questionnaire. Failed active need investigation in terms of their mental health. That's predominantly anxiety, but there's also some of the somatic symptoms and social function there. Self-employed, again, we're, we're much better off. 
So about a third failed the GHQ. <laughs> this is significantly different. But a third is still a third. So, so hang on, let's have a think. Remember I said only 4% of us are in those low-strain jobs. So we can't necessarily say that if you're in a low-strain job, you've got some difficulties. There, there might be So as you heard, about one-third of independents failed the, the GHQ and about 55% of those who are organisationally employed. It seemed generally to indicate a heightened state of anxiety and it's going to take further research to understand exactly what's going on here, to understand more about the relationship between a person's job, what we might call the, the job design, and the degree of anxiety that a person experiences as a result of the job design. So afterwards, Claire and I sat down to have a chat about what this means for SLTs, whether they are independents or, or whether they work for the NHS. Uh, one thing to note, we recorded this interview in a small community centre and the first part of the interview was in the kitchen, which didn't have any heating and it was freezing cold, so it wasn't really practical to take off our jackets. So apologies for the sound quality. That's unfortunately the price we have to pay to sometimes be on the road to get these interviews. But I hope you'll stick with us because I think the content's really interesting. So what interested you in this, in this area? Well, I've been practicing as a speech and language therapist for over 20 years and had really started to notice how a lot of my friends and colleagues were talking about feeling stressed and thinking about leaving, feeling undervalued and I wondered whether that was just my friends or whether there was a more widespread issue perhaps or perhaps everybody was completely happy and loved their jobs. So that's where my interest stemmed. And so broadly then, before we go into the detail, was your intuition correct? I don't think it was. I think that there is some truth to what I was suspecting. So what I found is that there are some people who have great jobs and love their jobs and are very happy. And there are some people that are not in great jobs and that does affect their well-being. So you, it was interesting when you spoke, when you spoke to the group, you said that the one thing that everyone had in common, irrespective of where they worked, is that they loved being SLTs. So I wonder if you can expand on that and tell us what is it that people love about their jobs? Absolutely. I think everybody that I interviewed talked about the thing they love. And that what really came out as the important thing was the relationships that they build with their service users or their clients and the ability that they have to effect change. So this notion of making a difference, so being able to see the children with whom they work or the adults with whom they work or the families with whom they work move and progress and have a better quality of life and better experiences. They love that, that building the relationship with the service user and being able to effect change. They all felt passionate about communication and their role in supporting communication, which is a fundamental human right. 
they were talking about that a lot to me. So that's the element of the job that they really love. So this is one of the themes that came out from, from your interviews. So what, what were some of the other themes that came out? So I think connected to that, if you're thinking about what they love, were the things that caused them anxiety or caused them stress. And often that was when they were unable to do what they love. So they were unable to effect change or build relationships. And this came, to do, came down to what their jobs looked like in terms of the demands that were placed on them. So they didn't maybe have the capacity to do what they wanted to do because the demands were overwhelming in terms of the numbers, for example, on their caseloads. Uh, that's really interesting. So the, the satisfaction, which makes sense when you, when you say it, comes from not doing the bare minimum, but then taking someone and, and doing the maximum that you can from them. That then makes for a more satisfying job. That then relieves anxiety and stress. So presumably some of the anxiety comes from not delivering the best care that you would like to be able to deliver. Absolutely. So this is thinking about the control that they have to be able to deliver that kind of care. So if they are told that they can only see service users that fit a particular profile, that's sometimes hard. And if they are told that they may only offer a certain amount of time, that can sometimes be hard because sometimes they feel that what they are able to do doesn't match what they think they should be doing. Does this possibly, and I'm, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but does this possibly explain why there is higher well-being within the independent sector than there is within the NHS. Just because as, as a matter of course, when you're working for an institution, you don't have as much control over your, over your kind of day-to-day -day life. I think so. I think that there is research out there to show that generally people who are self-employed tend to really like the work that they do. This is generally beyond speech and language therapy. And I think I would agree that in the independent sector, the people working there do have control over the size of their caseloads, over how long people wait, over how much intervention they can provide. And that sense of control, that level of autonomy does lead to better well-being, to less anxiety. It's interesting because I also would have thought being independent would come with, its, with a whole bunch of other stresses and strains like how am I going to pay my bills at the end of the month and getting patients and that sort of stuff. Does Absolutely. That... I think working in the independent sector is not stress-free. The stress looks slightly different in terms of where it's coming from but independent therapists do have to balance what they want to provide as a gold standard service with having to run a business and make sure that they are able to pay the bills, for example. So we managed to escape the icy kitchen in the end, and I said to Claire that what was interesting was that, irrespective of whether we were talking about independence um, or, or people who were working in the NHS, a surprisingly large number of SLTs had um, well-being issues. Now, in all workplaces, in, including the corporate sector, there's a theme that has emerged over the last few years, and it's resilience, how to be more resilient, how to develop a resilient workforce. And in fact, we're going to be looking at this issue of, of resilience in a future podcast. And I asked Claire, 
how she thought this might relate to her research. My research was not looking specifically at resilience. However, a number of the people that I talked to said they felt that they were resilient, that they did look after themselves and took care of their well-being. What I did find was that there does seem to be a link, an association between what your job looks like and your well-being. So I think it is important to be resilient and take responsibility for yourself, but I don't think that the employer shouldn't take any responsibility for what a job looks like. So whether the demands in a job are manageable, whether the support is available to employees, what kind of autonomy or control do they have. I think that it would be wrong to place the responsibility of the employer to transfer that to the individual, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that does make sense. I mean, so then, I guess the question is, people might say to you, and, and this doesn't, you know, this doesn't necessarily bear on your research, this is almost a, a personal question I'm asking you, is, what, if, what do I do? If, if I agree with everything you say, and I say, I, I, I need to look at my job, what, what, what are you advocating that people do? Well, I think that, as individuals, it is very difficult to change what your job looks like. The people that I interviewed, some of them said that commissioners within the NHS need to be more aware and have a better understanding of what speech and language therapy is. So that services are better funded, which allows for demands to therefore be more reasonable and maybe support to be better, for example. So I think what SRTs can be doing in terms of service level is to be ensuring that commissioners are educated and understand what it is that speech and language therapists do. I think that if commissioners and other professionals understand and value what SLT is, then we have a better chance of being recognised so that it, I, th I think a lot of it comes down to funding. How we go about influencing commissioners, how we go about securing better funding and how we make the case for the role of SLT in happier and healthier communities is the subject probably of, a, of another podcast. But the one thing we should bear in mind when thinking about the future of SLTs, whether it's in health or education or criminal justice, is that there is a strong correlation between the degree of control that a person has over their job and their well-being. But as we were at an Asseltip meeting, we thought it was a good opportunity to talk about the role of private healthcare in the UK today. So, I mean, all the people that I sort of encountered today and that I spoke to today, they're all, obviously this is an Asseltip meeting, so they're, they're all uh, independents. Um, your message is, is decidedly not the way to feel better or is to become an independent, is it? No, absolutely not. I think the NHS is an incredible institution and I think we should be fighting for it and supporting it. I think there are things that we need to be doing within our speech and language therapy services to ensure that therapists stay there 
And part of that is about how the jobs are designed. That is not something that an individual therapist can change. That has to be at a higher level. It has to be more at a service level. Right, okay. And so, I mean, because what, what I found interesting talking to and uh, the people beforehand, and then it was a big section of your presentation, when I spoke to the, to the people about the amazing work they do, I'd always end up and go, well, don't you think this should be publicly funded? And they all went, yeah, I think it should be. It just happens that it's not. Um, this was evidently a, a source of some, well, of quite significant anxiety for the independent therapists, the fact that they had left the service. And if you can talk about that. Yeah, so I think what I found in terms of the people that I interviewed was that some of the therapists felt guilty about leaving the NHS because they believe in the NHS. They believe that services should be available to all. However, their jobs were making them feel very unhappy. They felt that they could, earlier I spoke about being able to effect change and build relationships, the things that they loved. They weren't doing those things that they loved. And they felt that if they stepped out of the public sphere, and worked in independence, they would be able to do those things. But it didn't stop them feeling guilty about the fact that they had chosen to put their own well-being first. Right, because some of them resisted it for, for quite some time, yes. almost as a matter of, of principle. Mm, absolutely. And I think, I don't know what I think about that. Yes. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just interesting. But, but, and then what you spoke about then was, was, was and again, I think this will be interesting to, to people who are both uh, in the NHS and outside of it, is, is a kind of, uh, you said it was a, a kind of cognitive dissonance. I wonder if you can explain what you meant by that. Well, what I meant by that is that, you know, you, these therapists are saying they believe in the public health care, in the NHS, but they are now choosing to work in the private sector. So, essentially, cognitive dissonance refers to the fact that their actions don't match their values or their beliefs. Right. Now what we know is that people find it very difficult to live with that conflict, with that cognitive dissonance, and so need to take steps to change it. You can do that in a number of ways. You can change your belief to match your action. You can change the action to match your belief. Well, you can do a little bit of both, you can meet somewhere in the middle. And what I found the therapists in the independent sector do is a combination, different people do different things. So the independent therapists talk about doing things for free, so providing training or sitting on committees, etc. So they felt that helped them to feel better about charging people for a service. Or they felt, for example, that what they were doing was something that was asked for by the service users. Right. So somebody spoke to me about the fact she was really resistant about working independently and her service users um, said to her that they felt her principles were all very well but they weren't getting any services. So they really needed someone. So she was able to feel better about what she was doing because she said, I'm actually able to provide a service that these people really need. Mm. That's, and, that, and then that's interesting, and I think that makes perfect sense to sort of, that, that adjustment makes sense because people need services and, 
um, and they need to be provided. But th there was one argument, which I, I think we've heard before, which is that, um, well, if I go, if I go private um, and, and the people who can afford to pay, pay, maybe, that, maybe that's a good thing for the NHS because it relieves some of the burden. And you were, quite, you were quite strong on this point. I was wondering if you could talk to that. Well, I disagree with that notion. I think that what we know is that if services are taken outside of the public sector and into the private sector, what happens is that the private sector then has fewer people sorry, the public sector then has fewer people working in it. They are not able to provide the kind of services that they were initially able to. So they don't look as good. So it becomes a bit of a, a cycle that more people will then leave because right. the public service isn't looking great. So we all start to move over to the private sector. So I don't think that we are left in a situation where people who can afford it to access the private sector, people who can't access the public provision. It will just become a second-rate service. Then, well, and it just it yeah. becomes smaller and smaller, yeah. so that actually eventually you're left without any service to speak of. So then the people who can't afford private are left high and dry. Right. So I don't think that, I don't agree with the notion that working outside of the public health service is a good way to relieve the pressures on that service. I think we need to relieve the pressures by supporting it more. Right. So that's, I mean, that's true. I'm sure if we weren't under threat of being washed away, we would have spent several more hours talking about job design and advocacy and uh, private versus public health care. Uh, next time we're in Penzance in Cornwall to talk to the co-founder of the World Allied Health Day, Carrie Biddle. Uh, we're going to talk about leadership, about women in leadership positions, about why we think SLTs make good leaders, and also, of course, about World Allied Health Day. So I hope you'll join. Until next time. Ugh. <laughs> I've got this one. I'm like, what? Uh, I find it so much easier to talk if I haven't got this thing here. So, yeah, I think it's important to acknowledge that SLTs love what they do.